Guys, welcome to the podcast. Before we get started, as ever, remember that all the information you're about to hear is for educational and entertainment purposes only and is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure or prevent any illnesses or diseases. Please make sure to consult your healthcare practitioner before implementing any of the things we may discuss in this podcast. Speaking of education, if you're an exercise professional, coach or anyone working within the realms of health and fitness, when you're done listening here, make sure to head on over and check out our education portal at www themusclementors.co.uk if you like us and truly care about the well-being of your clients about getting access to the best and most up-to-date information in the areas of exercise mechanics hypertrophy sleep improving your online coaching services and much much more then be sure to join up you'll gain access to endless hours of content focused around everything you need to become a true elite coach and get your clients in the best physical shape possible this is all in the form of video lectures weekly live education sessions and study groups you also get early access to our podcast and access to any exclusive Q&A segments we do with our guests. The content never stops on the portal. It's not a one-off course. It's an ever-evolving learning platform designed to give you the best information possible in this area. Head on over to our website and become part of our epic community, full to the brim of other professionals who, like yourself, are focused on providing the best health and physique-related results for their clients. Join us and them and gain the resources, support and accountability you need to become the elite of the health and fitness industry. For now, though, grab yourself a pen and paper and enjoy the show. Welcome back, everyone, to the the Muscle Mentors podcast. Joined by myself, Luke, Paul, hello, James, Howdy. Ross, hey. Um, um, We are. I was, I was about to list off the number like I do on the live education sessions, but I have no idea what podcast episode we're on. It doesn't matter. Um, what we're doing today is talking about how Ross looks like a knockoff version of Eminem. Well, so those watching this initially he turned up in a white wife beater vest holding a can of Monster, which, you know, looked a bit like a Stella. So really, I worry yeah. about the face. Yeah, I'm, I'm the real trans shady, everybody. The real trans shady. <laughs> he was real pleased when he thought of that joke. Yeah, he's <laughs> got the opportunity to repeat it. Joke's on you. He was, um, he was aiming to undo the sex goblin in Moria by giving mm. us... Yeah, exactly. He's now, cool. though, he's put a bigger top on and flipped his cap backwards, so now it's more of like a... Cap was up alone. Correction. Cap was always backwards. All right, well, <laughs> now, though, now, though, I'm thinking more like a like a jacked-up Fred Durst. That's the vibe I'm getting now. We've got <laughs> a little biscuit thing going on here. <laughs> that, that just carries utter shame with it. Right. <laughs> I like a biscuit. Um, but to be fair, both rocking monsters. That's... Mm. Paul and Paul and Ross, are, I mean, I feel like you, on my screen you're on both on the bottom, so you should do a cheers. Like, if you go there, that might be awkward, but we'll try it. No, no, it's in the left. This one. is great audio <laughs> material. Yeah, <laughs> someone isn't there. Someone isn't this on a walk going, What the no, no, fuck? You'd go, you'd go this way, and then Ross would go that way. And you go this way, yeah, it would have been that way, <laughs> yeah. Cheers. This is terrible podcast material. <laughs> we're we're trying to wave cans on my screen. The various parts of the screen. You fucked it up. We'll we'll. Um. Anyway, today we're talking motor unit recruitment, the force velocity curve, um, or force velocity relationship, I should say, um, and how it applies to training. Um, and how we can potentially find use in that sort of stuff for like as coaches and people trying to get jacked because um, it comes into this thing. And we just did a live yesterday. Well, we did our monthly wrap up on the on the education portal, which featured Paul going into a nice explanation and using some borderline um, questionable, questionably racist models. <laughs> this is not. <laughs> I have to explain this now. Okay, so I use, if you've never seen, go on my Instagram and uh, you'll see these carousels that I make. And a lot of them feature this sort of white stick guy thing. And there's some kind of brand that they've made. And normally this guy, I've used him like holding a bus, sitting on a bench, kicking a ball, whatever. And the one that I've got on one of these slides, he's, he's holding a gun. Now, coincidentally, I didn't make this. The one that's holding the gun happens to be the only black stick guy. I don't know why I didn't make this. Terrible. <laughs> and I hadn't really noticed until someone pointed it out. And I went, oh, God. 
<laughs> to be fair though, the people who designed it, they really should be ashamed. It's <laughs> such a bad move. I know, guys. Uh, what are we thinking? <laughs> They're like, well, <laughs> I'm gonna have to go back and look and see. Are there others? So I'm like. If the only black ones also feature, you know, kidnappings and like they're all shoplifting, I'm going to be like, guys, I can't use this anymore. This is terribly racist. <laughs> so I'm hoping there's a bunch of them, you know, taking their nan out for a walk at the duck pond or something. It's just like really tame. That's what I want. From these. Oh, anyway, anyway. But no, so Paul did, um, did quite a nice job going through motor unit recruitment and basically just going to repeat the live for everyone. So uh, crack on. Oh, thanks, mate. So as you can see on the screen, I've got these slides. I don't... All right, so let, let's let's see if we can have a little outline of, of what motor unit recruitment means, and then we'll come into force velocity afterwards. So a motor unit, just a kind of fancy way of describing how your nervous system interacts with muscle tissue. So a motor unit is composed of two main parts, a neuron, and there's a motor neuron that comes down from the brain and the central nervous system to a bunch of muscle fibers that it attaches to and turns on. I kind of think in my head, it's a bit like the wiring from when I flick a switch to the light bulbs that they're connected to. Here, you Which type of motor neuron, Paul, is it? Come on, mate. Alpha. Right. Which is a part, which is a subclass of which type? Oh, fuck. <laughs> Go for it. <laughs> it's been a while. <laughs> uh, lower motor neurons. So ah, okay, right. these are motor neurons that come out, out of the spinal cord, essentially. Are they in the dorsal or the which part of the horn? Do you remember that kind of stuff? It's been a while since I looked at these things. Eve, dorsal. Um, yeah. Uh, We've gone very nerdy on this very quick. And this is a this <laughs> I've looked up for a little while. So we get even nerdy because they're talking primary motor cortex and <laughs> the anterior horn. Nice. Um, nice, nice, nice. All right. So that's part of the spinal cord that Luke's referring to there. So we get this motor neuron comes down, attaches into a bunch of muscle fibers. They're a bit like light bulbs. <clears throat> we flick that switch and it turns on the light bulbs that are attached to that guy. Motor unit recruitment just refers to how many of those light bulbs we're flicking on at any one time. If we're trying to train a muscle and to grow it, it makes sense that we probably need to turn it on in order for it to get stimulus in the first place. So the idea here is let's outline how recruitment occurs because it's going to have some pretty strong implications for our ability to grow it. So motor units go in size order. They're called the Henneman principle or the Henneman size principle. And what this really means is motor unit one contains fewer muscle fibers the motor unit two, which contains fewer muscle fibers than motor unit three and four and five and so on. You can see this on a carousel on my Instagram. And Chris Beardsley uses as a nice uh, graph for us to see this with. And he's using a thumb muscle that contains 120 motor units. And motor unit one contains something like 21 muscle fibers, if I'm remembering off the top of my head. And motor unit 120 contains 1,770. So we've got a discrepancy of like 20 fibers and nearly 1800 fibers between these two points. So, you know, if we were trying to grow something, it would be better for us to, to grow the 120th motor unit because it has way more muscle fibers attached than growing motor unit one. Right. <clears throat> and we, we call this an exponential increase in muscle fibers attached to the motor units. So because motor unit 120 contains more than 119 which contains more than 118. If you put all this together, the final 10% of the motor unit pool contains more than half of the muscle fibers within a muscle. So let me say that again. The last 10% of the motor units in a muscle contain more than half of the total muscle fibers within a muscle. And this is due to this curve. It's easier to see. So please do go uh, either check out on the, the education portal. We've got a whole section on this stuff. Or go and look at the carousel and you can see pictures in there as well. Can I say something? No, the, the, um, the, the graph you pulled up with where you, that Beardsley made, what muscle is that? that the... uh, it's adductor holalala. You can actually go. Polycyst or what? No. It might be. Um, yeah, so it's thumb. Yeah, it's thumb. Um, yeah, so that because that's because that sums it up quite nicely that even in the thumb, like the largest motor units are going to contain potentially 1800 muscle fibers. 
Um, that's only in, you know, as we've just said, that, that a really sore thumb muscle. And that's um, because that was what I was going to say. Like I didn't, I didn't bring it up yesterday, but there's the this thing called the innovation ratio, which will change massively between muscles. So, and that is basically the number of muscle fibers innervated by a neuron. And in <clears> muscles, you're going to have more fibers per unit than in smaller muscles. So, muscles of like the hands and the fingers and the toes um, are going to have smaller. You know, le less fibers per unit because we need to perform finer motions and stuff versus the bigger muscles of the trunk and the legs and the you know yeah. the thighs of the arms and stuff like that um but that same description that paul described of the largest motor units will still contain you know the 10 percent of what is essentially the amount of muscle fibers then that's uh, so the last 10 percent are going to contain most of the uh the fibers in the muscle that is true still but the, yeah. the amount of fibers is going to be massive those yeah, huge. So, is the adductor pollicis? Is it P O L L I C I S? Yeah, pollicis brevis, which is um, which is thumb, which is that that one I believe. So, we've then got this idea in mind. If we're trying to cause growth, most of the motor units, uh, it, the most of the muscle fibers are in the last ten percent of these motor units. So, if we're trying to maximize growth, we need to ensure that we train those guys. So the, the question we've then got is, under what conditions do we experience maximum motor unit recruitment? Maximum motor unit recruitment just meaning turning them all on. And so it turns out there's three conditions whereby we experience max motor unit recruitment, although only two of them are going to really lead to hypertrophy, to growth. And that's going to, where we get into force velocity afterwards. So let's outline the three first off. So the first one is if we lift something very heavy, now, this does vary muscle group to muscle group, uh, but generally it's kind of accepted about your five rep max is when you've roughly turned on all of the motor units. We've recruited, if it's the thumb here, all 120 of those motor units. This, as we said, it will vary. Some muscles experience max motor unit recruitment, not until you get into like three rep max area, some around eight. The thumb muscle actually that we've just referenced uh, I think if I'm remembering rightly, experiences maximum motor unit recruitment, about 50% of its total force output. Now, the difference we should say, well, if I've recruited everything, how come I can still produce more force? Wouldn't that not be my one rep max if I've recruited everything? The other thing we have to take into account here is something called rate coding, which is simply how rapidly we continue to contract those guys. How many signals per second are fired down that neuron? And so, and it's more than one, right? So you can see a big difference if you're just pulsing it once per second versus eight times per second, et cetera, et cetera. So the, the maximum force we can produce requires maximum rate coding and a thing called tetanus, uh, and then maximum motor unit recruitment as well. So we've got a little bit of variance, but we're gonna simplify in our, in our mind's eye and say, once we get to about the five rep max, we've recruited all of the motor units available. Sweet. And we're therefore creating a training stimulus for all of those guys. If we start with something lighter than our five rep max, let's say we're doing a set of 12. Well, then we've got some options. When we first lift the object, let's imagine I'm doing a bicep curl with it. On the first rep, I don't need to recruit all of the motor units. Not yet, because I don't need that much force to overcome this object. Maybe I only need 70, 75% of the motor units at this point. But as I continue through the set and I get to rep seven and eight, some of those guys that are currently contracting are starting to fatigue. They can't keep going. But thankfully, we didn't recruit everything yet. So we can actually increase the size of the electrical signal a little bit and recruit some more. We can recruit up towards, and we call these guys at the top end of the motor unit pool, high threshold motor units you might see htmu written by certain people that just refers to the size the amplitude basically size of the electrical signal required to turn those guys on and so <clears throat> when we start with a lighter object as we approach failure and we've discussed before the problems with what that really means but we'll go with a simplified idea at this point as we approach failure we we are starting to recruit those guys we haven't yet recruited until finally we have recruited all of the motor units in the motor unit pool. And now even those guys are fatiguing and now we can't continue the set. Bosh, done. So if we lift something within our five rep max or we get to kind of within five reps of failure, which we can think is basically the same as lifting your five rep max. It just has to approach it first. 
we're getting maximum motor unit recruitment and we're placing the stimulus on all of those guys that are involved, which because all of them have been recruited means all of them. The third condition then, and this one does involve maximum motor unit recruitment, but doesn't lead to growth, is when we move something super fucking rapidly. If you try and launch a light object into space, you will recruit all of the motor units. Now, why? This bit is going to be related to fast twitch and slow twitch muscle fibers and contraction velocity. So force velocity, here's where this comes in. I want you to imagine in your mind's eye a graph and up the y-axis we have force and along the x-axis, the horizontal, we have velocity. It's a curve that starts high up on the force side of things, high up on the Y, high up on the vertical, and then comes down and like sachets its way down and to a really low point along velocity. If you're not sure what this is describing, just literally chuck in force velocity relationship, force velocity curve into Google, and you'll see plenty of pictures of, of this particular shape. And really what it tells us is that maximum force can only be produced at really slow velocities, slow speeds effectively. And maximum velocities can only be achieved at uh, small amounts of force, right? They can't simultaneously coexist. We can't produce a crap load of force really, really rapidly. And so with slow and fast twitch contraction speeds, let me see if I've got this kicking around anywhere. Uh, I'll find that afterwards. Now there it is. Okay. No, I don't have that on that guy. It'll be on the carousel itself. Uh, you can go and actually look the precise speeds. I want to try and say, so the, the fast twitch contraction speed, when we say contraction speed, if you guys imagine actin and myosin cross bridges, and hopefully that makes sense to some of you guys, but if we look and zoom quite closely into the muscle, in down into the sarcomere, fundamentally the guys that are connecting to each other sliding along as a sliding filament theory are these actin and myosin filaments well they have to bind and then they actually uncouple they bind couple they, they couple together uncouple couple together uncouple that's related to rate coding as well that speed of how that goes about in fast twitch guys the fastest they can achieve is something like 110 milliseconds it's around that and that's their contraction speed the slow twitch guys, it's some, and these vary, right? So, because it's not like fast twitch is just one thing. There's a, there's a spectrum within there. There's a spectrum within the slow twitch stuff and things in between as well. The slow twitch guys have a contraction speed that's more like 40 uh, milliseconds. It's slower. So the fast twitch guys can contract nearly three times faster than the slow twitch ones. The fast twitch fibers are only found in about the last five to 10% of the motor unit pool. So if you want to use your really rapidly contracting um, muscle fibers, you have to, because of Henneman's size principle, have recruited all of the previous motor units to get to the fast ones. What then happens is these fast twitch guys can contract and relax faster than the slow twitch guys have even been able to get in the game. In my head, I picture this as us trying to push a car, right? And, and on one side, we might have like a really small Reliant Robin thing. And on the other side, we've got this giant lorry. And all of us are the muscle fibers. And we're all stood, you know, 20 meters back on this start line with the car ahead of us and the lorry ahead of us. And when we want to produce force, in order for us to produce force, we have to get our hands on the car or on the lorry in order to shove on it and for it to shove back on us. Until our hands are on the car, we're not experiencing the car. We're not experiencing any mechanical tension. And so when the whistle goes and we have to run to the car, well, if there's a bunch of people in your group who are way faster than some others, they can sprint, get their hands on that Reliant Robin and start shoving on it way faster than some people have barely even got off the line. My Aunt Doris is just nowhere near. She's hobbling away, trying to get her hands on this Reliant Robin. She's fucking nowhere near, but I don't have an ankle. Doris just made her up, but I wish I did, right? I don't know why I made her a cripple either. Apparently she's hobbling her way up to this Reliant Robin. <laughs> and if the fast guys can produce enough force that they can make that Reliant Robin go just by themselves, the slower people get no opportunity to even get their hands on the car to experience any mechanical tension because the fast twitch guys are fast enough and strong enough for that load to just run a fucking way with it. <laughs> no one else gets in the game. 
If it's a lorry, though, yeah, those fast switch guys get there faster again, but doesn't matter. The lorry's too heavy for them to run away. It gives time for the contraction speeds of everyone else to sort of jog up to the lorry, get their hands on the lorry. And then eventually with everyone and finally with Doris, we can start moving uh, this lorry along. And that's kind of how I conceptualize force velocity is the fast switch guys can contract so fast that the slow twitch ones don't even get a chance to play the game if the load is light enough and a, a super easy way for you to test one of the uh, effects of this on yourself um, is essentially trying to flick yourself so if you take your right index finger and you can then hold the tip of that right index finger against your thumb as though you're making like the okay sign and you can then flick yourself in the arm so you're going to press against your thumb and then eventually release the thumb and your finger will flip rapidly and powerfully. And I can make a noise by hitting myself in the arm with that. If I do the same motion, but without the priming mechanism of my thumb, and I just extend my right index finger in the same way, I can't produce anywhere near as much force. And that effectively is, is a demonstration of force velocity. When I press against my thumb first, I prime, right? I, the fast twitch guys are trying, but they can't overcome the thumb. Everyone else gets involved. I release them. Bang. I get the full force of everybody pushing against my thumb. When I just try and extend it without that, I don't get this priming mechanism. And it's reliant on the guys who can get their hands on the reliant Robin fastest and first in order to do this thing. So in the third condition where we get maximum motor unit recruitment, when we lift something really rapidly, yes, we turn on all those muscle fibers but we don't necessarily expose them all to a tensile force. They don't all experience mechanical tension and therefore we don't really see muscle growth. So maximum motor unit recruitment within five reps of failure or starting with around your five rep max will experience maximum motor unit recruitment, turns on all those guys and exposes them to enough force that we can start to really challenge and push levels of growth. Explosive stuff, yes, it recruits all the guys, but it doesn't expose them to enough mechanical tension to cause growth. Hopefully that made some sense. It didn't. Sweet. <laughs> <laughs> now I'm going to add the because if, if and I'm not going to use such a uh, a lovely analogy here. I'm just going to actually. Use <laughs> but for those that are aware of like actin and myosin, because even in even in the like to expand on this, and if there's any nerds out there, um, but also to just like I don't know if people want to um, understand some of how it works a bit more. The larger guys, those, you know, let's say we've we've stimulated a bunch of the larger motor neuro, um, motor units, which have larger motor neurons, which innovate more muscle fibers. The, and the number of them are like type 2A, 2X, fast twitch guys. Getting those guys to contract slower is still beneficial in terms of exposing the fibers to mechanical tension. And there is a huge like variance when it comes to the enzymes involved in. So people might have heard us or seen in other places talk about actin and myosin, and myosin, which is like this protein that kind of has like a golf ball head, um, and each and it basically is part of this sarcomere, which is the contractile unit, smallest contractile unit within a, within a muscle fiber. And during the process of muscular contraction, actin. Um, actin is basically pulled on by myosin so these golf ball heads of myosin which are bigger will basically bind to actin and pull themselves along which leads to this kind of shortening almost like pulling a rope in a tug of war um and the enzyme that triggers that or catalyzes that reaction um, between myosin being able to bind to actin to pull itself along is called myosin atpase and there's some very like, <laughs> <laughs> Ross's face during that was like, don't ask. <laughs> <laughs> and then um, but each pull of like myosin on actin requires this enzyme. And there's a big variance between how this enzyme works depending in you know, in different fibers. And when we can get it to you know the contraction speed to be slower, and um, quite often that means this enzyme can work more efficiently and you actually will get more myosin heads being able to bind, which creates more mechanical tension within the fiber as well. So even in those slower scenarios of like pushing a lorry, the big guys will be able to contract, but because they're also having to contract more slowly, that's a very favorable outcome for hypertrophy, um, it seems. Um, and it's also worth, worth talking about because like some people will be like, well, what if I'm 
you know you might have had like a trained individual and you're like well you know i've been training for years surely i can contract bigger motor units with more muscle fibers quicker than someone who's just new to this gym thing and there's an element of truth to that but the orderly recruitment thing will still stand in the sense of you might you might go through the process of recruiting the smaller guys more quickly than someone who's new to the gym and they're still yeah their body's essentially learning how to use their um their muscles and be like oh i do have these bigger guys that i've never actually had to call on but now i can and it might take more stimulus for them to get there and i would say if you want to dig into that there's um some presentations on our education boards where i've gone into like motor unit recruitment in quite a lot of that <laughs> and um but there's a thing where the the motor neurons which are the parts of those alpha motor neurons that are part of the motor unit with training the the larger guys are, are generally less excitable so they require more of a stimulus to get you know to be like okay i'll switch on with training there's a bunch of adaptations that seem to happen which means they become more excitable um relative to like the, the smaller guys which are generally also very excitable as it is so they're they're easy to stimulate and get you know get them to um kind of tell their fibers to contract but with the the larger guys their excitability can change quite a lot depending on the stuff we do in the gym they're still going to be recruited after the smaller guys so the orderly recruitment thing still stands but that might happen quicker so hence why people who are trained and stuff they don't need to warm up as much potentially they can kind of get to it more quickly but they still have to follow that smaller guys go first and then we get to the bigger guys i need to correct one thing i just said i got my times the wrong way around which is dumb so contraction times vary slow twitch fibers 90 to 110 milliseconds fast twitch from 40 to 84 well, i'm pretty sure part of my brain went i said 110 was faster than 40 which <laughs> you actually did i did not even clock that i saw the clock somewhere in my brain as i was talking i was like i'm pretty sure i said that wrong but it was then buggy me so i was like let me go just check this maybe you read it as meters per second in which case you're right yeah, yeah exactly <laughs> that is a larger number than this number therefore it must be faster <laughs> so the, what i was saying was right just flip those numbers around a little bit i suppose that then leads us um possibly to to a couple of things that are worth touching on in this realm uh, a little bit. One we could say is that the thing called the strength deficit, which I think we've spoken about on the podcast before. Um, if we were, well, I'll give a recap of it anyway. So the strength deficit, if you imagine, let's use a leg extension because it's a nice thing for us to visualize. And it makes for a, a cool thing to Google. If you were to Google real quick, um, maximum isometric voluntary contraction, and just look at the pictures. What you'll find is a, is a bunch of images of people effectively strapped in like a rally car looking kind of thing while they're about to do a leg extension. Um, if, if you're ever then going like, why do those guys use things like seatbelts sometimes on leg extensions? It's actually the same idea. It turns out when your nervous system is juggling lots of stuff, it's less effective at producing force. So when they want to measure maximum voluntary isometric contraction, capacity they strap them the fuck down just so they can really test that as well as they can maximum isometric voluntary contraction what the hell does that mean well maximum is maximum isometric is they stick them at one position and they just get them to let's say we're in a leg extension imagine they're going to test maximum leg extension strength in one position halfway through the leg extension excursion and unless you happen to be you know juggernaut from x-men you're not moving that path Right. Technically, you could overcome the machine if you produce some ungodly force, but it's never happening for a human being. So you're going to shove. It ain't going to go anywhere. We can measure how much force you produce. Voluntary is you just get asked to shove against it. You're like, right, Steve, here we go. Shove against that as hard as you can. Relax. Cool. How much did he force to produce? We make a note of that. Maximum isometric voluntary contraction. There is then a, the same thing gets done, but involuntarily. So maximum involuntary isometric contraction. And this time we skip the part where you get to choose to contract it by electrocuting your muscles sort of directly, right? You just get the old cattle prod out and you just jab them in the leg and see how much force they can produce in the same position. Am I right? Am I, I, I want to say I'm right. You're saying like John Meadows at one, there's a training video where he was at Elite FTS and they actually use a cattle prod. Is there really? <laughs> um, that's phenomenal if that's the case. Um, so there turns out to be a difference between your uh, involuntary and voluntary 
isometric force or force production. And you can produce more force when you're electrocuted than when you choose to do it yourself, right? And this gap, this discrepancy between those two numbers is known as the strength deficit. So let's say you could produce 100 units of whatever involuntarily, but voluntarily you can only make your quad produce 80 units. Found the video. Okay. You're going to have to watch this on YouTube or just type in John Meadows cattle prod and wait for it. <laughs> they are actually cattle prodding. This oh, phenomenal. There's a, there's a lap one on there as well. So there's a leg extension and a lap video for people to look at. This is what we need to bring to our to our future camps. <laughs> it's going to start electrocuting folks. Yeah, phenomenal. phenomenal. So we could produce, that's, we call it, I've made up numbers, right? 100 units would be the isometric involuntary. 80 units might be what I can make myself do voluntarily. That gap of 20 is the strength deficit. Beginners have a bigger strength deficit than advanced trainees, right? So, you know, let's say the beginner's isometric involuntary is 100, but when they try and do it themselves, they can only produce 60. Whereas Ross, advanced, been going for ages, you know, the real trend shady could get his deficit to only 10, right? He might be able to get 90. So there's a smaller deficit. Well, if you imagine... And by the way, this will also vary muscle group to muscle group. So classically, the quads are quite hard to close the gap. There's a bigger discrepancy. Uh, remember, the, I think the last time I looked, something like 15.5% on average was yeah. found for like the quads, whereas only like 5%, I think, was for like biceps and elbow flexors and maybe 1.5% on dorsiflexors. It's something. I, like I can't remember whether it was you I had that conversation with. But I remember someone asked me about that and I, I said, honestly, I'm not sure we'll ever know 100% why that's the case. But like from a kind of um, logical perspective, it makes sense that your quads would never give you everything because it would, ideally you'd have enough force to keep you standing. And, and that's because that strength deficit exists generally across muscles of the lower body as a whole. Like we see that they're harder to close the gap um, because if you gave you 100% and you had nothing, good luck walking. <laughs> probably, <Could do. laughs> probably going to be able to want to walk or run out of certain situations so um, we can we can imagine then bigger muscle groups uh have a bigger strength deficit than smaller ones um and then we've also got the issue of coordinating when we're in actual exercises we've just looked at the leg extension we would imagine not that you could really find the precise deficit on something like a squat because it's too complex for what's going on but if we take the idea of motor unit recruitment and put it into this strength deficit concept, if even when we hit failure, there's still a 15% gap to actually our maximum ability to produce force, then either our rate coding or our motor unit recruitment might not be as effective as we think that it is, in which case we might still be leaving a little bit more on the table. One of the reasons we don't want to be changing exercises every three minutes is you get better at exercises as you do them. Your nervous system allows you to close the gap of the strength deficit, which allows you to then get into more effective motor unit recruitment and a greater training stimulus. So it's worth us just at least keeping that, that concept in mind. I think you might also, last thing I've probably got to say on this, is if you're thinking of EMG as well, like when you try and launch something, you send a big electrical signal in order to get those fast twitch guys. They're, because they're high threshold, they have a high amplitude. So the EMG signal is larger. And if you thought that EMG signals and big EMG signals equals effective hypertrophy, or it really challenges that guy, it's like, yeah, that's not a given. Yeah, we can see a big signal, but when we understand force velocity, motor unit recruitment, we might go, oh, there's another possible flaw in just using EMG to tell me what's going on to those tissues as well. Sustenance of force as well, being able to maintain it. Well, that, that's one of the things you miss in a lot of EMG because you're getting a snapshot. Yeah. People will uh, look at this high EMG, EMG reading, but like if you actually look, at, you can look at these things in research. Like if you're reading the graphs, it's this giant spike. People are like, oh my god, look at all that force. But like unless that is sustained over time, it doesn't really mean all that much. Yeah, so it could just be that big velocity thing we just discovered, but oh, they didn't really experience much. Looking good. So, so I mean, we we used the example yesterday. I don't know if you just brought it up. Um, of like doing jump squats you quite often see people being like oh yes you, you you know motor unit recruitment is generally highest during plyometric exercises like jump squats you're like, well yeah because you're asking your body to create contract a lot of muscle very quickly to move your entire body off the ground but the rate that you know that you're contracting muscles at with the aim of moving explosively and fast that motor unit recruitment doesn't translate to muscle gain 
and you see that in the studies as well they're like oh yeah they recruit a lot of muscle fibers but that didn't actually mean that they grew them and that's yeah. the conditions for for muscle growth are, are largely different it involves motor unit recruitment but there's that speed that rep speed or contraction velocity thing that we've got to bring in which which is where i don't know we could probably steer it now yeah yeah we, we when we start launching things we just touched on okay that's going to bias us potentially towards the velocity end of the thing but you've got to remember force velocity has a relationship that's why we call it called it the force velocity relationship and now to make things slightly more complicated and annoying well moving something rapidly against different types of resistance leads to different outcomes in terms of the change in force we experience I'm sure some of you guys might have seen us use things like luggage scales and with a dumbbell and moving it rapidly. And we can see what happens to the needle on the luggage scale by moving a dumbbell really rapidly. As this thing we might call a one to one profile for every inch I move my hand, the dumbbell moves an inch as well. You'll then probably have heard us say things like two to ones and four to ones on pulley systems. All that describes is the distance I move relative to the distance the object or the resistance moves has a ratio, one to one, two to one, four to one. So if my hand moves four inches, but the resistance only moved one inch, it's change. This is, I don't know a better way to say this one, but this might sound complicated, right? So if for anyone who remembers Isaac Newton, right? Force equals mass times acceleration. 10 kilos is a mass. By itself, it isn't a force. We need gravity accelerating it before we experience it as a force. Otherwise, you should go to the moon and like the moon's gravity is something like 1.62 meters per second squared or something like that. Yeah, you definitely just pulled that out of the I haven't because I've put this in very previous things. It is. It, it's about, you can Google this, it's about 16.6% of the Earth. Oh, relatively confident in that. Uh, right. So if that 10 kilos is going to be less than two kilos on on the moon right it, it we yeah. need an acceleration is that right yeah 1.62 thank you very much thanks very much not my first time uh, uh so what did you say? one one six is 1.62 so moon surface gravity is about one sixth as powerful yeah yeah you find the actual number it's, it's something like 1.61 1. 1.62 1. 1. 1. yeah. versus the earth's 9.81 roughly um cool so we've got this thing but the acceleration component is the bit we're interested in. Gravity is doing this acceleration of 9.81. And then I move it and I have to overcome that acceleration that's trying to shove it down. But part of acceleration is also related to how far an object travels in a certain period of time. So I've moved four units and it's only moved one. I've moved faster than it has. So the, ex the load that I end up experiencing, the force in my hand is related to the distance that that thing travels as well now. And the long and short of what this means is, as I start moving rapidly on a four to one, I don't see the force change on the luggage scale anywhere near the same level that I see if I was to do it with a dumbbell. And that changes what's happening on the force velocity curve, and therefore also what's fundamentally then being experienced by my muscle tissue on the other side of it. Does that make any sense? No. Sweet. Good enough. <laughs> <laughs> that's good. But that's because there's a thing, I mean, and this is where Jimbo, I'll refer it to you here, because there's a video that we use quite a lot of illustrate this. So I used it in the presentations on the site um, when it's like applying sliding filament theory and motor unit crew and tying it all together and be like, okay, what does it look like in training when we're like, you know, how do we want rep speed to look and all this sort of stuff? And there's a, a video of James doing a, a Nautilus pull down with like 10 second concentrics like and, and like but obviously james is trying to move at like max speed but you've got to this point but there's a specific thing going on with how you set the exercise up and, and the machine and stuff that makes that possible because we'll find a lot of times that people just like you can't move that slowly because of how the resistance is coming through carry on <laughs> the, the big thing with that example that luke's talking about is the excursion for the pull down movement I'm going through is quite a large distance I'm pulling through, partly the length of my arms, partly from the movement. So if you think of a, a parallel path, lat pull down type movement where we're pulling from in front of the body and I'm pulling to my elbow to down by the waist, there's a large excursion there. So that's part of it. So the distance I'm traveling is quite large. Think of that maybe just compared to a standing dumbbell row. If you stood up, flexed at the hip, 
and just doing a dumbbell row into the side, the actual distance you're going to move that dumbbell is maybe only even for myself, 30 centimeters. Whereas on the excursion, the handle, my, my hand's moving through an excursion, maybe of 60 centimeters. So because it's double the excursion, maybe it's going through, random figures I'm pulling out my ass here, um, that might mean the time to then get to that failure point could be a longer duration. We're not going to get a 10-second concentric contraction on a single-arm dumbbell row when we're moving through a shorter excursion. So we need to have an idea of what is the excursion for the concentric contraction we're going through as part of the equation in terms of how long is this maybe rep speed going to take once we start hitting this failure point. But then also, is the profile congruent? So if we're going through a pull-down movement, but it wasn't a congruent profile, so it's light at the start of the movement, and then as I was pulling through, it was gradually getting heavier and heavier and heavier. As I'm pulling through, generally, on a pull-down movement, we're going to get weaker. So I'd start the rep relatively explosively and then come to a point where I'd almost come to a dead stop. If I'm getting weaker as the load's getting heavier... So a failure point on a profile that isn't congruent on a pull down of that, that, that setup could be three seconds because I'd start really quickly, but then I get to the point where I've got so weak, the weight's got so heavy and I still, you could say failed, but if it was a congruent profile, so it started heavy and then gradually got appropriately light, like Luke's talking about in this video of myself on the nitro pull down where I've adapted stuff and played with stuff. So it's appropriately heavy at the start then literally just drops off just perfectly as I keep getting weaker through the movement, you get to a point where I'm trying to explode as much as possible concentrically, but it's still taking or it takes like 10 seconds to complete the rep. Um, so we, we can't just use the generic term that it's got to take four seconds, five seconds, 10 seconds, whatever that time period is to hit an appropriate failure point. And we're seeing that slow concentric contraction, explosive slow concentric contraction, because that's going to vary depending on a number of different things, depending on the profile of the movement, depending on the actual excursion, my hands going through from the start position to the finish position, depending on the, we can say the complexity of the, the exercise. Um, if we look at a leg extension compared to maybe a barbell squat on a leg extension, we can look at that concentric speed and then get an indication in terms of how close we are um, to this failure point. But if we take a barbell squat, the body can easily adjust and shift how it places tension and where we place tension as we start to fatigue. So if we're purely looking at knee extension, then we can tr transition that um, focus on the hip extension if the knee extensors start fatiguing. Um, so we can't just, in a simple text, look at this four-second contraction speed at a failure point to be the number we've got to hit um, to make sure that appropriate muscle has, has gone to that failure point. Um, so it's just more going on with a more complex, let's say, when there's more joints involved, there's more stuff going on than a, quote-unquote, isolation-type movement like a leg extension. Yeah, I feel like we should just confuse everyone even more now. Why not? Um, <laughs> yeah, but no, because you off the back of that, I think it's important to make the note that because you know, when we're talking about force velocity relationship, I think Paul said it that the slower the contraction or the slower we contract a muscle, the more force we can produce within the muscle. Um, but then that force that the muscles are doing, so if yeah, say we were we got to this point where we were able to contract fairly slowly, the force the muscle produces is then subject to the strength profile of that muscle in terms of the internal moment arms and the length tension relationship and fatigue so although we might be moving slowly and got like like james in the scenario that james has described the how the muscle behaves then has to come into play which is then how we need to match up the resistance in you know to, to match that so it's um and if we don't get that we're not going to potentially do our um or end up with the best scenario for hypertrophy um, because we'll get we'll get to a point where we can we just hit this dead stop. We're like, oh well, I could ideally continue contracting this thing really slowly and exposing all these fibers to a lot of mechanical tension, but because the resistance is coming at me in all the wrong way for that tissue, um, you're kind of missing out potentially on on that stuff, and that's maybe where you get into those like effective reps. 
um, and things like that. Um, and that's where, again, it comes back to like marrying up that whole thing of understanding strength profiles and resistance profiles and force velocity relationship. Um, and um, which it might not be so confusing, but I think, it, you know, when we think force velocity relationship, you're thinking, okay, so the slower I can the muscle, the more force I can produce. There's, there's conditions that that comes under and that your know, strength profile is one of them, that force that, although you might be able to produce more force, that doesn't mean it's going to be the same throughout the range of motion for the muscle. Um, but equally, if you just decide to move slowly, that doesn't mean you're going to um, produce more force. And that's where I'll throw that one out. Like what, what is potentially missing from that scenario of being like, oh, well, I'm going to do a lap pull down, but I'm going to move four seconds through the concentric as opposed to one. Like anyone want to have a stat? That isn't related to what's the resistance doing. Yeah, just in terms of that part of the process. So if someone's like, oh, yeah, I'll just tell everyone to do slow concentrics because moving slowly, I produce more force. That's so better for hypertrophy. Teague. Just off fatigue is going to be a big one. Carry on, Ross. Like you have to, yeah, I can I can choose to move slow if I want to, but the fact that we need to have a certain level of fatigue to drive motor unit recruitment and that in itself is then going to be relayed back to optimal cross bridging and myofilaments. And that kind of, those kind of objective outcomes are usually look like a slower rep speed, but it's not like I've just gone, okay, I'm going to slow down my reps because I know that these three things will now be happening if I slow down my reps. In reality, you have to build up a certain level of fatigue within that normally distal fatigue, which is kind of a term we use for fatigue away from the central part of the nervous system. And that is a condition that allows all this to work. You know, there's an objective outcome that we normally can visually see but that objective outcome is only valid if there's certain things going on internally. One of those really big ones is fatigue. And it's one of my pet peeves when I speak to people about these things. I've had consults in the past. I'm like, okay, you know, there's, you know, a high level of fatigue that often brings about a slowdown of contraction velocity. And the only thing that they take from that is slow down. <laughs> you know, they just jump into a set and just immediately start bringing things down to a snail's pace. And like, although we do want control, we always want to maintain control in the extremities. There is a lack of choice in the decision to slow down towards the latter end of a set. You don't just decide, I'm going to end the set now and just immediately start to slow down. There is fatigue that needs to be there. It needs to accumulate and it needs to be present alongside a couple of other things for all this to be valid. There's, there's, there's a huge difference between moving at a really set three second concentric, because even though you're trying to go faster than that, you can't. Yeah. And me deciding to curl my pen at three seconds up in a concentric. Like, yeah, I've chosen to do that, but my body still isn't a moron. It's not like, He's moving slowly. Recruit everything. Like, no, it's still related to how much it, it still wants to be efficient. It doesn't want to be like, let's use everything just for the fuck of it. Otherwise, we'd be pulling doors off hinges every time we try to kind of do anything. It still only wants to use the least amount it can get away with for that task at hand. And so we've got to keep that, as the boys have said, in mind that we want. Yes, we might want a slow contraction speed. But in an ideal world, what that really means is a slow contraction speed because you physically couldn't get it to move any faster, even if your life depended on it and you were trying. And that set that Luke mentioned of Jimbo's where he goes through this sort of 10 second concentric, that's Jimbo really, really, really trying to go as fast and hard as he can. That is really different than if Jimbo just jumped in there, put you know five kilos on the stack and then decided to go through the same, same motion, same set speed. The internal reality of what's happening to him in those conditions isn't even close to the same. It's an outcome, it's not a decision. <laughs> you know, it's something that yeah, happens. Yeah. I, think, I think there's a side point as well. This is a pretty cool topic. And we're talking about these things and these kind of preconceived conditions for effective reps, if you will. This is one of the reasons why all these different modalities of training kind of work. You know, I was speaking to Paul about this before where like everyone loves to argue about why this is right and this is wrong and why you're an idiot and why I'm smart. In reality, if we all just kind of boil it down to, okay, what makes all this effective in the first place, they'll find we have a lot more in common with different training modalities than we think we do. And that's probably going to give you more of an understanding as to why your thing is effective rather than sitting there trying to decide why something else isn't effective, which is what seems to be happening in the, kind of the greater length of the industry is people just tell like, a reps and reserve is better and here's why. It's like, okay, top sets back off to fair is better. Here's why. Here's why high volume is better. Like boil it down to why they all work because they all work and you'll start to have a far more kind of conducive conversation about, okay, this is why these things tend to happen. And it opens up your mind and opens up your kind of, you know, your forte of training possibility then as well. I think we've said like before, that this is a human thing 
to start arguing with people you actually share a lot in common with, whether that's Protestants <laughs> and Catholics or people who are like, I'm for RIR and I'm for failure. It's like, guys, you're all still lifting weights. <laughs> okay. Let's, <laughs> let's calm down and recognize what are the commonalities within this before we start, you know, trying to uh, shoot the other side. I don't know where I was going with the end of that thing. I was trying to think of something vaguely funny that was related to Catholics and Protestants, and I, I came up with nothing. <laughs> <laughs> um, but like the ebook I wrote in in the first lockdown, I'm like, I mean, that's more of like a. I mean, was this was it? Luke's erotica, by the way. This is completely unrelated. He wrote a very sexual novel. Um, that one's not out yet. But... <laughs> uh, no, um, I'd say like the first fifty percent of that is is like called Hoffman's Hose. It's a bit weird. Luke Hoffman: The Stories of Beads, Bands, and BDSM. So yeah, the first like fifty percent. I think the well, the first section is almost the lesson on hypertrophy and like all the mechanisms involved and some of the stuff we've just discussed. Um, and it you know going into failure versus reps and reserve because this was written for people who are like, I'm now training at home and I, I can't necessarily you know do this reps and reserve thing because I've got all these um, bands that are really weak and stuff. So it was like, hey, here's here's understanding both. But the takeaway is. All those people they're talking about the same spectrum they're just setting up camp on different points of it and the failure people are like i like the end where everything fails this is a great place to be um, and the other guys are like well i just i'll explore a little bit more but ultimately i'm still on this spectrum i you know i know where to go to failure and all, oh there's also this other stuff that's useful at some points and the irony is people in failure camp are like Oh yeah, the reps and reserve crew—they're a bunch of pussies. It's like actually they've they've explored more of the same place that you're in. They're actually probably further along than you are. Um, and um, and often they're like, "Oh, do you think it's that different because you're two reps away?" <laughs> <laughs> and um, and uh, but like my take, the take home, and like yeah, I say is like for the, the purposes of the conditions people are training in, failure was good, and, and I like to train to failure for reasons beyond just hypertrophy and time efficiency and this and this and this and that. But it's, um, yeah, you're ultimately all talking about the same stuff when people have that debate. It's just um, recognising uses for different things. Um, the thing is, as well, like, I don't know about you guys, but, like, there are so many ways you can be knackered out by weight training. Like, if you haven't done a heavy just strength block of something for a while, do that. You'll end up, like, knackered by the end of that first session kind of back. Then go do a higher volume thing for a bit. You're like, fuck me, I'm dead from this. And then you might do stuff to kind of just two sets, failure, die or even one set and just extend that guy a whole bunch, like some Dorian Yates hit style kind of shit. Like you'll leave dying. There's so many different ways to die and feel like, fuck me, I work really hard in that session or that particular workout thing that you're playing with. That even if we're like, oh, those people are being pussies because they don't train the way I train and how I train is hard. It's like, eh, there's loads of ways of approaching hard uh, in these proceedings. That sounded more euphemistic than I meant that last bit to sound. <laughs> I think there's like there's other debates to have around like what I don't think I think better is the wrong word in most cases. Like if you're thinking maybe suitable in a certain situation, it doesn't really roll off the tongue as well. But like you're looking at something maybe who really favors higher volume stuff, which anyone who knows me is not me. I like general moderate to volume and lower volumes and kicking the shit out of myself. <laughs> most part, like one of the arguments around you know, like higher volumes potentially being, I don't want to say less effective again, but like if you're looking at something, for example, like accuracy or potential injury risk or something like that, like if you're doing something that's, you know, super open and, you know, you're trying to build a big ridiculous amount of reps, the ability for you to remain accurate across that set might be a little bit less or so. But at the same time, you look at something that's super, super low volume, you might be just running the risk of exploding your whole body, you know, kind of way if you're not accurate. So they're just arguments made on both sides, but it's not a case of, you know, that argument leading to the answer, okay, this one is better, but it's more suitable at a certain situation is probably going to be the argument and the conversations that people need to have. You know, you could look at, you know, the argument against lower volume training, which is obviously something that I do, you know, from a fatigue management perspective, you know, the, the ability to bury yourself as frequently as I do might not be as conducive as we want it to be, you know, so there's other arguments there that kind of go against it, but just, you know, opening up the conversation more to, you know, what you have in common and kind of coming to an agreement what's suitable in a certain situation rather than what's better all the time is going to lead you to somewhere that's far more appropriate than this kind of like high horse of mentality around what's the best kind of training stuff. And going on for another tangent potentially, um, but a lot of the maybe the, I'm not say a lot of the camp. Some of the camp that would preference high volume don't appreciate the skill requirements for the exercises involved. 
And they may be efficient at the skill of that movement to perform at high volume. But if they're coaching people, they're working with people and that aren't, then, as you say, to keep that accuracy across each rep, across each set, um, is a huge skill requirement on pretty much all movements. We can't even say it's on a skill requirement on a squat. Like even just take the leg extension and perform that for multiple sets under high degree of fatigue. Um, there's not many people out there that can do that appropriately. Yeah. I'm trying, I'm trying in 10 years and I find it difficult to do high rep sets and leg extensions. Like generally, yeah. generally, I find it very, very difficult for the sake of just keeping my head in it. You know, I find it very, very hard. You know, it's like one of those things. 11 years, actually. Wow. <laughs> Jimbo's training 2,700 years. <laughs> he steals from us. Jimbo's <laughs> basically the Gandalf of this, uh, yeah. of this outfit. It is getting over 20 years now, so <laughs> it's building. <laughs> All right. Um, I mean, anything else we want to add there? When's the uh, new ebook out then, mate? The, um, oh, yeah, the really GSM. Well, uh, <laughs> I mean, it's been live on Pornhub for quite a while. <laughs> Did you see that that thing of uh, there was like some Chinese dude? Oh, yeah, he put up maths lessons. Yeah. Put maths lessons on Pornhub. Was making like thirty five k a year from from people watching it. He was like, loads of people go there, so the traffic's high. No one's putting out math content on there. There's an audience, and he's made and fair play, outstanding work. <laughs> Uh, do they? Does he get ad revenue? In the, in the yeah, I think that's how he gets the money from it. Unbelievable. <laughs> 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 I'm just sitting there looking like a Saturday night pipe in your hand, and all of a sudden you're sitting there looking at fucking <laughs> algebra. <laughs> but yeah, imagine- Lisa Ann and calculus, just how I like it. <laughs> <laughs> if it came up in a uh, um, like suggested thing, or like some guy went on with a serious maths teacher. <laughs> was like maths teacher and I like went on and it was like what? I want to know what he tagged this thing in to just say like schoolgirl and shit kind of like that so, yeah. yeah teacher king yeah. I just feel like then the guy would like you know that the person who searches for it finds they like go into it and then they're like oh and then like all of a sudden they're reaching for a notebook and they're like this is really interesting I mean the best part is that 40 minutes into his lecture someone does come in and just get plowed right in front of the screen <laughs> <laughs> just at, the end, at the end of the lesson, he's like, now what you are going for. Just like, <laughs> <laughs> oh, God. Uh, now he talks about some weird physics stuff, and then he goes, and now to see it in action. <laughs> oh. Here's the, how, how here's the conservation of momentum from <laughs> yeah, out of my car. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my God. And we can see if I angle the penis to 45 degrees, we'll see a perfect parabola come out of the end of the dip. <laughs> We're going to calculate how far we think that goes based on the initial conditions. <laughs> oh, I feel like this is what you should be doing on. on <laughs> oh my god! Well, that's how this motor unit recruitment, force velocity application of training. That's how it ended. <laughs> A maths guy on Pornhub. Um, yeah, I mean, it's you now you just do imagine how many people get walked in on by their parents, like trousers down at their desk. It's not what you think. Seriously, I'm I'm learning math. It's not what you think. It's an experiment. Yeah, Yeah, I I found myself on this video. It's really interesting. Mum, come and watch. Oh, sorry. (laughs) (laughs) I imagine like just having zero qualms about watching it. Like somebody comes in and is like, what are you watching? Uh, Porn. (laughs) (laughs) Well, yeah. Or like someone, yeah, she comes over like, what's this? What are all these video suggestions on the side? This isn't this isn't YouTube. Oh yeah, about that. <laughs> anyway, um, all right, wrap it up. Wrap it up on that note. Um, yeah, wrap it up sounds again related. James is just like fucked. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, thank you, uh, thank you for listening, people. If you have any questions on this, then obviously drop comments. Especially the last bit. <laughs> I was going to say. And, uh, purely related to Pornhub, nothing yeah. else. <laughs> and for the record, you won't find my ebook on Pornhub, just in case you try and... Uh, <laughs> yeah, because it's not ready yet. <laughs> <laughs> um, and um, yeah, if, if you want to explore this stuff more, I'd say obviously head on to the portal. There's some stuff, quite a few bits on there where we cover that. And you'll see videos and lectures where we'll apply it to training and you'll actually have some visual aids and stuff like that. So I'd say head on in. Sadly, no one gets ploughed in ours, and I think we need to. Uh, yeah, it is. We probably could get away with this it. behind a paywall. It's private. <laughs> <laughs> um, Imagine. 
<laughs> here now is Cal and Hannah. Couple of five. This is part of the coaching process, eh? This is a Paul's math lesson featuring Laura. Um, not in any. Uh, any... <laughs> <laughs> anyway uh, until next time people thank you boys and thank you everyone for listening thank you for listening to the muscle mentors podcast just a quick shout out to our sponsors who support the channel and everything we do in the realms of education and coaching within the industry firstly our original sponsor Supplement Needs, they've been with us from the start. If you're seeking the highest quality supplements on the market, particularly organ support and health-orientated products, you can use code MUSCLEMENTORS at checkout for 10% off your order. Precision Prep, our recently introduced food preparation partner, delivering the finest quality meal prep across the UK, featuring their new Pro Prep range, a concept closely developed with us to solve an issue we see day-to-day with time limitations and nutritional compromise. If you're seeking the highest quality nutrition delivered to your door for the best price, look no further. Use code MUSCLEMENTALS at checkout for 15% off your first order and 10% thereafter. And lastly, RAR Optics, the highest grade blue blue light blocking glasses on the market with the slickest style. In a world filled with artificial light, particularly those with high screen time, I can certainly say I'm one of them. These can be a real game changer for sleep quality and recovery, something we use personally on a day-to-day basis. Grab yourself a pair by using code MUSCLEMENTALS at checkout for money off all orders. Once again, thank you for your continued support. Until next time.